I'm going to talk about a number of different things woven together tonight. Uh, Some of the themes are motivation for practice, effort, uh, understanding context, the challenges that the the teaching of the Buddha Dharma faces in contemporary society. Mm, A lot of stuff. Stuff. Good, good thing some of you have been doing concentration for a while. So, so if you're going to ask the question, well, you know, why talk about motivation? There's a first level of exploration, which is it's the fuel that actually powers effort. So if it's not well-grounded or doesn't have much depth, then practice lacks energy and commitment. And this is true for Dharma practice, just like everything else, right? You know, if you're, you ever have the experience when you were in school and, you know, you weren't doing so well on a subject, say, and you brought your report card home and your parent told you, well, you know, you better get motivated. You better get some motivation. You better get get on it, you know. They're basically saying you, you need to find some uh coherence to what you're doing so you can really commit to uh, what's necessary to to learn what you want to learn or do what you want to do. And we know in practice if there's not energy and commitment, there's no vitality or uh, endurance there. So the practice kind of easily uh, sputters and flickers and um, wanders around because there's no staying power. And um, when the inevitable obstacles come along, they're easily strong enough to overwhelm resolve. The Buddha talked a lot about the importance of making effort to wake up. There's a whole section of the Eightfold Path that you're probably familiar with called Wise Effort, where the Buddha talks about what needs to be done from a big picture perspective. And he talks about basically uh, working in a way that closes off the unwholesome states or abandons them when they have arisen. And the second part is the Buddha asking for us to summon or develop the wholesome states and extend them. It's interesting, that section of the path. The language of wholesome and unwholesome is often used, and it's usually translated as uh, wholesome states or states that are offshoots of generosity and uh, metta and compassion and wisdom. And the unwholesome ones are the sourced in the opposite and express it. Uh, craving, ill will, delusion. But there's a whole other way that you can think about those, that binary. And it is the wholesome states are states of non-suffering. Non-suffering. And the unwholesome states are states of suffering. 
And when you think about it that way, it makes all kinds of sense that you would want to abandon or let go or close the door on the suffering states. And you would want to develop and extend and empower the the wholesome ones because they're not suffering. They're the opposite. What human life couldn't agree with that as a direction? Oh yeah, less suffering, more non-suffering, otherwise known as happiness, joy. Hmm. But in addition to the section that talks about wise effort, every other part of the Eightfold Path calls for some kind of effort. You know, whether it's the effort to uh, understand the Four Noble Truths, to uh, the effort to practice wise intention uh, in the cultivation of metta, to practice renunciation, the effort to uh, understand the importance of sila and to practice it in daily life. The effort to develop mindfulness and concentration in order to be able to do all those other things that we're trying to do. Because those are the key mental factors and key assets in being able to do all those kinds of cultivations to really fulfill the path, to practice the path in its depth. And effort is a really wide topic and it's got a lot of interesting and paradoxical aspects to it. A lot of nuance in figuring out what wise effort looks like in any kind of practice situation. Because what it looks like on the ground, what it looks like in the immediate, what you're doing in the immediate when you're fulfilling wise effort can be very dependent on circumstances and conditions and could look different for each person having similar kinds of experiences. So sometimes, for instance, a lot of focused attention might be called for. Sometimes it might be more letting go. Sometimes it might be working at your edge and enduring painful emotions and body sensations. And sometimes it's about steering away from them. So, you know, we tend to think of, of effort as just along this axis of a lot or a little. But there's much more subtlety to it. There's skillfulness in making effort that is... Uh, most clearly uh, seen and made when we're in close connection with our immediate experience. Close connection with it. Not just operating out of a sense of an idea of what our practice should be like or what we should be doing right now. But we're receiving the experience as it happens and uh, employing uh, the wisdom that can arise with mindfulness to tell us what to do with what we're knowing. So it depends on the totality of circumstances, this wise effort. The big picture is developing the skillful and letting go of the unskillful, but that's the big picture. So exactly how to do it 
is really dependent. And that is the art of meditation practice, figuring that out, developing some kind of facility and um, flexibility of mind to recognize what you're experiencing and finding a kind of organic, wise relationship to it. And that's what all these teachings of technique is about. It's like a set of training wheels to help guide us in coming to an embodied, organic understanding of how to work. But in the earlier stages and well into the practice, knowing the technique and employing technique is, is important. Because otherwise we tend to just wobble around doing our, our own thing based on our preferences. Another area related to wise effort is something that I've become very interested in. Um, And it has to do with how our individual and social conditioning inform how we go about practice. So, for instance, one might be loosey-goosey and not particularly care to fully apply oneself, looking for ease and comfort and practicing within these parameters, right? Like a kind of, oh, you know, I'll just flow, I'll go where it's easy and, you know. Or you may have an opposite kind of conditioning where there might be a tendency to to be tight and bear down on everything and, you know, try to control or master what we're experiencing, you know, kind of like gripping to make it surrender and be right, to be a right kind of experience, or do a certain thing as we attend to it. So both of these are not so helpful as exclusive patterns. (laughs) But, you know, they can be surprisingly durable because the conditioning is deep and the mind might not yet have the kind of flexibility and clarity to modify its approach based on conditions, right? It's not seeing clearly enough what the effect is of how it's relating to what is present. So, you know, that can go into a lot of different dimensions. You know, the culture we're raised in, both a national culture, our family culture, our religious culture, uh, even the culture in which we first learned the Dharma and how we heard what was being said and whether we took things in a way um, uh, that was very uh, literal but perhaps not necessarily uh, connected to a more panoramic understanding of things. But it's inevitable when we're making effort early and well into our practice that it's going to be awkward. Right? There's going to be certain kinds of ways that we try that aren't really functional. And, you know, how do you eventually figure that out? Well, it's usually through the dukkha pathway. <laughs> right? You try it and try it and try it and try it. And, uh, you know, like a one-trick pony at a certain point, you know, it uh, occurs to you, oh, maybe there's a different way to do this. Or maybe you have the good fortune of having, hearing a teaching or having a, a teacher point out to you. You know, there's, there's something else that you can do when it's like that. You know, have you tried X, Y, Z? Or, oh, you know, that's, that's too tight. You're actually trying too much here. Uh, 
maybe you need to redirect to something else or maybe you need to you know do this other practice for a while and bring forward more ease in your mind Part of our social conditioning can be informed by uh, Western culture's hedonic values and the desire to find ease, which relieves the stress of how life often is. So it's interesting because in many ways, and I'm speaking now for most well-to-do Western cultures, and I know there are many cultures within Western cultures, so don't you don't need to leave me a note to tell me that. <laughs> so, um, the culture itself has got a lot of wealth and a lot of relative physical safety, not for everybody, not always but compared to many other places and many other times, uh, you know, we're not experiencing too much famine, although there is hunger. We're not experiencing war here on our own shores, although there's wars going on and we're in them. And yet there's this sense of stress. There's a certain kind of stress that comes from the loss of social connection, the the... Mobility of our society, the way institutions are are no longer um, uh, legitimate or credible in the way that they used to be, the way we are bombarded by digital devices all the time. You know, just having the electronic leash on you all the time, if you have a job of any type, is a stress, right? The idea that anybody can send you a text message or an email about your work or something else that's going on that you're expected to read and respond to, like, soon. You know, I even feel this in my role. You know, it's like, whoa, all these text messages. I mean, you think that being a Dharma teacher is like you don't participate in that world. But it's kind of like you're forced to. In one way or another, you have to find some relationship with that because it's ubiquitous. It's there all the time. So there's a lot of difficulty now in disconnecting from these uh, digital devices and the worlds and the uh, demands they represent. We really want to disconnect in order to stop the onslaught, but we don't want to miss anything, right? Don't want to miss anything. There's an actual syndrome now that's called uh, FOMO. Have you heard of this? Fear of missing out. It's got its own acronym, FOMO, fear of missing out. And people suffer over this, you know, kind of like, oh, I saw an Instagram this, or I saw on Facebook this, and, you know, it's like, and I don't have it. Not understanding, of course, that, you know, most of it is like a Potemkin village representation of people's lives, right? That it's not not real, it's a mirage in and of itself. 
But we're very enmeshed in this world. It's interesting. It's almost as if our capacity to create these representational worlds has really inflated certain forms of, of, of delusion and made it increasingly difficult to be grounded, to even find the body in, in some cases and the other senses. So even though it's hard to uh, turn the devices off, the noise-to-signal uh, ratio is very high because they're addictive, right? If we just keep going at it, we're hoping to find the hidden gem which will permanently fix what ails us. So, you know, our love-hate relationship with these devices can sometimes lead to arrival at IMS. Um, with the desire to consume some new experience that'll make it worthwhile giving up the cell phone. So this is kind of like an interesting uh, uh, burden now placed on these practice environments, you know. If I'm going to give up my phone, it better be worth it, right? Be worth going through the period of uh, uh, like uh, really bad withdrawal and, and, you know, hangover. That's part of the experience of entering into retreat where, where we go cold turkey with this kind of stimulation and a lot of other electronic uh, stimulation that bombards us constantly. But the substitution of another form of pleasure to temporarily uh, obscure dukkha of the moment is not what the Buddha had in mind when he thought about liberation. So the idea that by going on retreat... Um, it's going to be uh, a consumer experience of of pleasantness is really kind of missing the point. But the way retreats are sometimes talked about and um, imagined by people um, can lead people easily to that conclusion, especially if they've never had the experience before. So There was a story in a a newspaper in December who was written by somebody who came on retreat for the first time and later wrote about it. And, uh, you know, it's a really interesting thing to hear how what we do here is described by somebody who's interpreting it through their own uh, lens of, you know, naive first experience, right? But one of the things that was said in the article was um, uh, a citing of some research at the Global Wellness Institute. Okay, so this is the quote. The meditation retreat is one of the fastest growing trends within the fastest growing sector in tourism, wellness travel. Meditation is seeing the same kind of growth that yoga did a few years ago and is now a billion-dollar business. A billion-dollar business. And I'm working for Donna. What, what can I say? I should have bought in early, you know, I, when, they were, when they were initial offering us shares. What can I say? So, now th- this is a very interesting thing because this is the inevitable part of living in a capitalistic, consumeristic society, right? 
where if something uh, has benefit or has appeal, then the move is to find a way to market it and market up and sell it and make a profit from it. So, of course, in the, the description of it, in this case, meditation retreats, the description real and imaginary is going to be pitched to um, those things that stressed out consumers are looking for most to relieve their stress. And, you know, it's really good that um, people are getting interested in something that has the power to be of benefit to them. Um, but there, people coming in's idea of what the benefit is and what the Buddha Dharma actually offers are uh, somewhat overlapping <laughs> to a fairly uh, moderate degree, I would say. Right? Because it is true that mindfulness meditation and some of these other practices can do good things for your cortisol or your your blood pressure or um, you know your your tight shoulders or whatever but what the Dharma really offers is the power to free your mind that's the point right to liberate your own heart mind to see through delusion to awaken the beautiful and wholesome qualities of the heart and mind to support the arising of wisdom. That's the point. And, you know, the good vegetarian meals are a nice (laughs) thing to have, a good support, but not really the point. But what this means to me is that it's really important that places like IMS don't compromise on what's essential, least the liberating core of the Buddhist teachings are lost, uh, buried beneath this uh, a faux version which is only oriented to stress relief and the ease of psychological and physical distress. Because that's not the point. I went to, uh, I had the experience uh, a number of times of, of, of teaching, uh, uh, being a co-teacher of a meditation retreat held in a, a place where there was also uh, yoga offered and uh, programs being offered and then, you know, like a lot of other kind of workshoppy things going on. Most of the building, you know, was talking and wasn't silent or anything. And they, they had... a a lot of things that you you could do there. They had a big store where you know you could you could buy things, and they had uh, they had uh, massages, and they had uh, facial uh, treatments, and you know essential oils and everything. So it was kind of an interesting situation to be teaching in. Uh, you know, trying to uh, offer some beneficial things from. Uh, the Dharma, and then, you know, sometimes people would, you know, be absent for a while when they were <laughs> down having their time time massage, and uh, you know, <laughs> they had a have, had a really good uh, 
uh, treatment, you know, they'd come back in and you could uh, appreciate the essential oils and everything. So, I mean, we're, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough sell. Renunciation is a tough, tough sell these days, right? <laughs> tough sell. Uh, and, you know, don't get me wrong about when I'm talking about uh, practice oriented only to stress relief and psychological and physical suffering uh, release. I'm all in favor of it, the cultivation of basic mindfulness. But that's the easy fruit of mindfulness practice and not the transformational process of the heart-mind's illumination. Right? So there's, there's uh, a way in which we can, perhaps more than ever, easily stop short and think we've got what there is to offer. I saw... Uh, Something just recent, recently, I saw it more as a headline than a well-developed uh, article, but they were talking about the benefits of mindfulness in medicine and how they were trying to figure out how to apply mindfulness in, med- in uh, medicine. And one of the challenges that they were trying to figure out how to address was how do you define a dose? <laughs> You know, because it's like, you know, somebody comes in, you're going to prescribe, you know, just like you might with your, you know, regular medication. You know, you take one half of, you know, 88 <laughs> milligrams or whatever the the thing is every day in the morning before you, you know, eat. What would you say? Okay, you're going to have three units of basic mindfulness of the breath, 15 minutes each, you know. You do one dose in the morning when you get up, you know, one dose at noon and one dose when you come home at night after after work. So to, to, to speak a little more about the article that was written about somebody's time here at IMS, I thought, um, you know, there's just really a mismatch between what the retreatant thought was the point of the retreat and what the actual purpose is. So there was at one point she described it by saying, think of it as a spa for the mind. Spa for the mind. Now, those of us who, you know, who have done some practice, we have had our spa-like experiences. In fact, you can you can say that at least for me, the most beautiful, the most satisfying, the most elevating, the most um, pleasant on a sensory level, the most illuminating and pleasant on a mental level, uh, the most uplifting, the most grounding, the most opening, the most... All of these have been associated with meditation practice. And... There's been an awful lot of non-spa times. <laughs> so, you know, if you're coming in and you're thinking, okay, spa time. You know, it's a hard slog, right? And especially at certain points, and you wouldn't even necessarily characterize it as particularly pleasant unless you have very unusual karma. And you're one of the, these people that 
experiences just a lot of pleasant all the time. But even with the pain of body and mind, clearly, at least for me, something important was happening. Some kind of fog was lifting and clarity was emerging. Now the writer, when she was characterizing her time at IMS, said, I didn't come on retreat in search of epiphany. I have a therapist for that. (laughs) Which, as a Dharma teacher, makes me feel good, actually. Uh, But, you know, because sometimes we're doing that without credentials. but And that's good because therapy can be very useful too. But you can see the way this doesn't line up and that there's a difference between what the writer wanted and the actual purpose of the retreat. So it's not surprising that at a certain point in her description she acknowledges that she cheated by reading. And she put it in quotes, cheating by reading. So, you know, how you understand what's going on, big picture, what your motivation is, how powerful it is, um, makes a difference in how you make effort. So if a retreatant is uninformed about the big picture Dharma perspective, they can waste lots and lots of time looking for that spa experience when a much deeper medicine is actually available. Now I wanted to juxtapose that particular article with another article that I read recently by somebody who's more in touch with dukkha. So uh, as far as I know, this writer is not a practitioner, though I would say he's certainly uh, what you might want to characterize as a seeker. So this is an article uh, by an African-American scholar named George Yancey, and it's called Facing the Fact of My Death. So I'll read you some excerpts from it. As a young boy, I recall very clearly telling my mother with innocent defiance that I wished I'd never been born because I will die someday. I can't recall her response, but I'm sure it worried her and left her feeling hurt. But I was frustrated, angry, afraid. While I knew that people died, it had suddenly dawned on me that I wouldn't be among them, that I will will die someday. It was an epiphany, one I would rather not have had. I recall thinking I didn't sign up for this. Who is playing this terrible joke on me? He says, strange I realized, but there I was, a child, elated to be alive, feeling the warmth of the sun on my brown skin, playing with friends in the streets, eating ice cream, celebrating birthdays, enjoying unconditional love shown to me by my mother and my older sister. Why did I have so much joy and shared love just to someday have it all taken away, gone forever? He says, even at a young age, I began to feel the heavy weight of my finitude. I couldn't put it down, even though I wanted to. So, uh, the writer here is a a professor, and he talks about uh, working with students on this topic. I believe he's a philosophy professor. 
He said, I want my students to experience one of those rare moments to consider the short duration of their lives, to get them to think differently about our time together, to value their lives differently. I make a resolve to remind my students that all of us, at some point sooner or later, will become rotting corpses. That, I explain, is the great equalizer. No matter how smart, brilliant, wealthy, beautiful, and fit you are, no matter how great your MCAT, LSAT, or GPA scores, no matter your religion or political orientation, we all will perish. And after hearing this, the students will often become completely silent. A sudden recognition that something's been haunting our joy, our sense of permanence. Yet a clarity emerges. My students and I see each other differently, perhaps for the first time. We're no longer simply students and professor, but fragile creatures and mysterious beings who have been dying from the moment we were born in a universe with no self-evident ultimate meaning. Something as previously uneventful as sitting next to one's fellow classmate takes on unspeakable value that shared understanding, vulnerability, and mutual recognition of collective destiny makes our time together even more joyful and precious. Now this one, this being, do you think he would have fuel for his practice? So this ties back into the importance of depth of motivation and how motivation that's conscious, that has some some force to it, some energy to it, some commitment to it is very important in being able to make the effort in order to practice. And it takes you in a different direction and it makes you willing to practice in ways that weaker or unclear motivations um, cannot. And the Buddha says that, of course, that suffering ripens either into despair or into search. So this author who has death in the forefront of his mind is motivated to seek and perhaps find a way to hold the truth of what he perceives and still be free and happy. So his samvega, his spiritual urgency, would be strong. And this in turn would support virya, courageous effort leading to the establishment of mindfulness, leading to concentration, which supports the development of wisdom. Of course, he would only take up the path if he knew about it. And it seemed like it had enough feasibility that was worth investigation and practice. Which speaks to the importance of IMS and other Dharma institutions being uncompromising in their integrity of teaching the Dharma. Because if what you're holding out is the spa experience, I don't think the spa experience is necessarily going to draw this kind of person. But I think a presentation of the Dharma in depth 
Yes. It's interesting, you know, when you look at the five spiritual faculties, the first of these is described as uh, faith, and then it leads to effort or virya, and then it leads to mindfulness, and it leads to concentration, and it leads to wisdom. It's interesting because they're putting faith at the front of the development of these qualities. So how can that even be? I mean, that doesn't really seem to make sense, does it? Why would you need faith first? And what, are, what is actually being talked about when this word sadha or faith is used? Well, it can't mean that you've gotten to the point where it all makes sense to you and so you're totally on board with it and you believe it and you practice it and you become it. Because that kind of seems like more towards the end of it all, right, than just right at the beginning. But it's interesting because part of the teaching is that one of the causes for the arising of faith is actually suffering. So how does that fit? And I think a way to understand that is that if there uh, is enough conscious recognition of suffering and one comes across something that seems like it might be plausible or possible or worth checking into. One is being compressed by the suffering into search. One sees a potential option, a particular avenue or a way. There would be an instinct or a desire to pursue it, right? It's like this says there can be an end to discretionary human suffering. I don't know whether it's going to turn out to be true. I don't know whether it's going to pan out. But this seems like it could be a door, and I'm looking for doors. Because where I am is not bearable. And I have enough confidence in myself that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see where it goes. I'm going to run the experiment. And that's faith. Early early faith, responding to suffering. Seeing an option. Taking it. So it's good to be conscious while you're here of how rare an opportunity it actually is to hear the Dharma offered in a non-spa fashion and have the opportunity to practice it. So all the conditions that, that are here, including those that might seem to be perplexing or not to one's preference, are designed to support retreat and alignment with the direction of the Dharma. So things have been thought out really carefully here about the program and the expectations and the way things are run and all the rest of it. So in terms of having a close to optimal environment for practicing the Dharma, you've really kind of fallen into um, 
the heaven realm. So it could be a really wise and skillful reflection to, to consider all the factors in your life that have come together to bring you to this point where you're here in this place of depth doing these kinds of practices. Having the conditions that um, have come together that are designed to support your opening and growth and development and, and understanding. And this in turn can help strengthen and deepen your, your own motivation in a way that gives you uh, the energy and the courage to, to practice in a way that has integrity to it. It's not about hard practice or soft practice or practicing this way or that way so much as, as it is. Is there integrity in the practice? Is there full-heartedness in the practice? When you come up against what's familiar, you come up against your, your own limitations as the heart uh, willing to find a way. So may your own practice flourish through strong and purified motivation and may you find your footing on the Dharma way and practice for your own benefit and for that of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.